I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, John 6. We're going to be in John 6 this morning, as Jeff said. Uh, We are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John. And last week we started John, and uh, it was a great start because we got to see these two, not one miracle. I mean, one miracle is a pretty cool thing, right? To, To read about and study one miracle. But last weekend, we actually looked at two miracles, two amazing miracles, two signs. Uh, One miracle or one sign was the feeding of the 5,000, and the other one was Jesus walking on water. And so we're going to pick it up today immediately where we left off last week. Um, And as we kind of get into our text this morning, or before we get into our text this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever thought to yourself, gosh, if I just lived... In biblical times, it would be so much easier, it, right? It, it'd just be so much easier to believe in Jesus. It'd be so much easier. I mean, if you had been there uh, at the feeding of the 5,000, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I believe. Or if you saw Jesus walk on water, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Have, have you ever thought to yourself, gosh, if, if I just hung out with Jesus like the disciples did, I would believe it. Anybody just, you ever thought that? If I could just see a miracle, if I could just see it, I would believe it. Or maybe how about this one? Um, if I could see a miracle today, if I could just see Jesus or Jesus doesn't even have to show up. If Jesus just like sent a miracle into the world, I would believe So I want to talk to you a little bit about doubts. Even when we see things, we might not believe them. My freshman roommate in college, his name was John Henry. He uh, came from Manhattan in New York. He was a big city kid, and uh, I was not. Uh, And uh, John called me Goke. He just, that was it. He just called me Goke, and John didn't have uh, any Christian faith whatsoever. And so he would regularly chide me a little bit, Goke, I don't believe it. Goke, I need to see it to believe it. So John was a very interesting roommate. You probably have a, a freshman roommate story from college days as well. Well, mine was John Henry. Well, one day, uh, John Henry uh, was down at the uh, gymnasium lifting weights, and uh, a weight fell on his hand, and I don't know if it broke it or what. I was not there, Um, but it just really started swelling up very, very quickly. And he got all panicky, and there were some uh, other students um, uh, from my Bible study where they were actually there. And these students, they actually went to a charismatic church. So in that moment, as John's hand, he's kind of freaking out, he's, you know, and it hurts, and his hand is, you know, all swollen, these students came around him, and they're like, hey, John, can we pray for you? He's like, all right. So they laid hands on John, and by the time they finished praying, his hand was completely back to normal. I didn't witness any of it. This is just, I'm sitting in my dorm room, and John, John walks in the door, Hey, Goke, you're not going to believe what happened. And he told me the story of this miracle, this healing miracle on his hand. And for the next few weeks, John Henry started going to Bible study. And then he got busy doing other stuff. And when kind of went back to the way it was. Goke, 
I'll believe it when I see it. He witnessed a miracle in his own life, and yet he still refused to believe. And that's what we're going to look at today in this story, people who witnessed miracles, and yet they still struggled to believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful new day, for this gathering of your people. And Lord, as we think about the ways in which you are moving and breathing in this world, and yet we doubt, we struggle, Lord, to believe, even in the midst of your miraculous presence all around us. So God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John 6, immediately following the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So to kind of set this up a little bit, there's a crowd gathering. And if you put yourself in Jesus' shoes, uh, in the disciples' shoes, the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, hey, this is a good church plant. Things are going really, really well. There's a crowd of people. More and more people are coming. I made it a good decision to leave my fishing business and go into ministry. And they're feeling really good. Things, things are going good in church. Sometimes some of you guys ask me, hey, how are things at church? Good. Things were really, really good in the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. Things are up and to the right. New people are coming. People are excited. Jesus is moving around. He's preaching some great sermons. In fact, they're so good that we just read that they're willing to kind of go looking for him, to find him, to just say, hey, Jesus, tell us some more stories. Teach us some more. Show us some more miracles. So things are really, really good. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do uh, to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the Son of God, uh, the, son, the, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who um, he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So again, Jesus has just performed two miracles and there were at least 5,000, maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000 people. They had just witnessed a miracle, and the very next day, they're like, hey, show us another one. That one you did before was pretty neat, but show us another sign. Show us another miracle. I mean, people are fickle, right? 
we forget so fast. And I think maybe, you know, maybe one of the lessons this morning is that no matter how much proof, no matter how much evidence, no matter what kind of experience you lay out for someone to, 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 to know Jesus, for some people it's just not going to be enough. You ever thought to yourself, if I just knew the Bible better, or if I could just explain this one thing to this, this doubter, this unbeliever, then they would believe in Jesus. No, they won't. Because we forget so fast. We can have the greatest laid out plan, the most wonderful, compelling presentation of the gospel. We can answer doubters' questions, A, B, C, D, E, and, and some of them are like, yeah, I, I, no, still don't believe it. I need to see more. Some people, no matter how much evidence you give them, it's just not going to convince them. It's just not going to compel them. Only an experience with the living Christ can actually change people's hearts. No matter how much we try, and I'm not saying we don't try, but when you try to help someone to understand something about the gospel or about Jesus and they still have doubts, don't get too discouraged. This is just human nature. We are doubters. And then they're like, hey, show us a sign. Remember Moses in the wilderness? Remember that neat sign? God gave manna through Moses to feed the people. And I love that they bring up this story of the, uh, the Israelites, God's people wandering in the wilderness. They're like, remember that great sign? It was so cool. It just helped the people so that they could have faith. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, as someone who uh, is shepherding a flock, who is uh, uh, helping to lead a group of people to grow in their relationship with God, I, I kind of tend to, to relate to Moses, the guy who was, you know, trying to encourage people, trying to lead people, reluctantly being like, God, I don't know how to do this. And frankly, most of what Moses had to deal with was just a lot of complaining, right? That's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness, is because they were moaning and groaning and doubting. They weren't believing God. Moses... We're hungry. Feed us. Moses, we're thirsty. Moses, we don't like the food you gave us. I mean, that's the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. And yet they say, hey, this is the sign that God used through Moses to feed the people. Can you show us a really neat sign? And one of the things I actually appreciate about the story of Moses and the, and the Israelites wandering through the wilderness is that people haven't changed today right? We're still pretty discontent. We still complain a lot. And last week, we talked a little bit about this, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and so often, people are consumers, even of religion, even of church, even of teachings. And so what we do is we go looking around for a better show. And we've got shows that you can go and see. They got smoke and lights and, you know, all sorts of really wonderful things to engage you. This is what goes on in the world. And pretty soon people start complaining. I don't know. Church was all right today. I mean, when you walk out of here today, you're going to have an opinion. And someone might even say, how was church today? You've got a, you've got a number in your head. Ah, oh, it was about a five. Sermon, eh, four. Communion, eight, right? 
fellowship. It was good. It was really good. I mean, and so we, we critique, we, we approach church, we approach God through this consumer mentality. God, what are you going to do for me? Church, what are you going to do for me? Give me what I need. That's exactly what's going on in the story today. You're just normal, just like those disciples who were following Jesus on that day. And we just need to acknowledge that we all have this desire, uh, this consumerism. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father. Notice he uses a pronoun, my father. People did not use pronouns to talk about God in this way, my father. People talked about the father, but nobody talked about my father. Uh, Let's see. But it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Again, they're thinking manna in the wilderness. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. And so we get to the point in the story, in the text, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this is the first time that seven times throughout uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to use this I am statement. And this goes back to the Old Testament, to Exodus 3. Remember Moses before he did all the the, the plagues and the leading of the people through the wilderness and uh, the Ten Commandments and all that? Long before that, Moses was a shepherd out in the wilderness. And he's wandering along, doing what shepherds do and taking care of sheep. He sees a burning bush. He walks over to it, and he encounters God. And he says, who are you? What's your name? And God says, my name is I am I am Yahweh. This is known as the tetragram. Tetra meaning four. It's just four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's no vowels. So there's this idea. So we don't really know how to pronounce it. But it's this idea of I am. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, What he's doing is he's declaring himself to be God. And this is all of a sudden pretty scandalous for these people. And remember, it was God who provided bread in the wilderness. Now it was Jesus who multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And people are like, this is really strange. What is going on here? But Jesus is declaring himself the covenant name of God, Yahweh. I am God the bread of life. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him uh, shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about Him because because He said, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. 
Jesus is declaring himself as God. Of course they're grumbling. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me uh, draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. And so Jesus continues to just kind of escalate and escalate this idea of his connection to God. In fact, what he's saying even now uh, at this point in time is, I am God. You cannot know God if you don't know me. And again, for, for, for Jewish people, this was outrageous that he is making this kind of claim. He continues on, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father, very truly I tell you. The one who believes has eternal life. And then he does it again, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the, the life of the world. Now, this is where it gets a little bit weird. This is where things kind of go off the tracks a little bit. And now if you're one of the disciples, you're sitting there thinking, did he really just say, this bread is my flesh? Peter looks at Andrew and he said, what did you, what did you write? Did he really just say, this bread is my flesh? I, I heard him say fish. I think he said, my, this bread is my fish. You remember we just had that, that fish miracle a couple days ago? Jesus, this is really confusing. And I can imagine the disciples are all of a sudden getting kind of panicky. But they're thinking to themselves, okay, it's Jesus. He's going to clear it up. He just said that his, his flesh, uh, the, the bread is his flesh. But I, I think we misheard this. Jesus, can you clear this up? Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Oh, shoot. That's what they heard too. He did just say that. He just called his flesh bread to eat. What is he talking about? Now you got to know, Jewish people did not eat pork. They certainly did not eat prophets. This is getting very weird. And they were very, very careful about blood as well. So what in the world is going on? And I can imagine the disciples are like, the day started so good. We had a big crowd. You know, the music, the band was awesome. We moved into a time of, of study and learning, and Jesus is telling some stuff. We didn't fully get it. But, but then all of a sudden, he starts talking about eating flesh, eating himself. We are going to have a PR nightmare on our hands here. We need to do something. Otherwise, Jesus is going to get canceled. We left our fishing business. We've left everything to follow him. We need to do something. And make no mistake about it. These people, when Jesus says, you must eat my flesh, they're thinking cannibalism. Now, I don't know if you saw Silence of the Lamb back in the day. There it is. 
There's a reason why Hannibal Lecter has a mouth guard on, right? If you never saw that movie, that's what he does, is he eats people. That's what these people are thinking about in this moment in time. Hey, it's awesome. I'm glad you came to church today. Let me give you a little teaching. After worship today, we're going to have a barbecue. You're going to eat me. I mean, that's what they're hearing here. You got to understand that is what's going on. And in this moment in time, the disciples have got to be freaking out in their minds. Why is Jesus talking about cannibalism? Surely he will clear this up in just a moment. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life, uh, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up to the last day. It's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. So now Jesus has said a couple times, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. And they are thinking cannibalism and vampires. And for Jewish people, this is a huge no-no. Now, this did not happen, but as I, I read this story, I think about this story, I can about imagine the disciples are freaking out in their minds, and they're thinking, we have got to do something. We need to rescue Jesus. He has completely gone off the rails. So they walk out. Again, this, this is not in Scripture. This is what goes on in my thought bubble. I think they walked out in front of the crowds and said, hey, we are so glad you're here. We are going to take a little bit of an intermission. Uh, the Messiah, uh, is, he's a little tired. Uh, he was, you know, feeding 5,000, walking on water. Uh, we're going to invite you guys to um, take about a 15-minute break, go out into the lobby. There's some snacks, leftover fish and bread from the day before, 12 baskets I've heard. Go on out there, um, go intermission. We're, thanks for coming. Um, J- Jesus will clear all this up. Jesus, what are you doing? You are freaking people out. You cannot talk this way. What has gotten into you, Jesus? Now go out there, clear up this mess, clean up this mess that you've created. Tell them what you mean by eating flesh and drinking blood. We don't get it, and we know the crowd doesn't get it. But go out there and clear it up. Act two. Jesus comes back out to clear up and to clean up this messaging that nobody understands, including the disciples. He continues, verse 55. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I am them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. And he's, I can just see him pointing to himself. This is the bread coming down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Mic drop. And Jesus walks away. This is weird. Right? I think... We can all appreciate if you were to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. This is such a strange teaching. 
And I don't know about you, but I think we as Americans, we as Westerners, we even as Christians, we feel like God owes us an explanation. Like God deserves to tell, that we deserve to be told by God why it is what, what God is up to in our lives and in the world. We have so many questions about what's going on in the world. We're like, God, I need to understand this. Jesus doesn't clear this up, folks. He goes out there, makes these provocative statements about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and then he just kind of walks away. And the disciples are like, oh my goodness, we're done. We are toast. Our ministry is over. And so if you're taking notes, here's point number two. God does not owe us an explanation for anything that God does. Oh, wait, you can still have questions for sure. But God does not owe you an explanation for anything that God does in your life or in the world. And Jesus just proves it. He's going to say some stuff. Nobody understands it, including the disciples. And then he just drops the microphone and walks away. Which ought to tell us that we are saved by faith. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by how much we know. We're not saved by how much we understand the gospel. We're not saved by how much we understand the Bible. We are saved by faith. Even those things, especially those things that we do not understand. So if you've got questions and you don't have answers, you would make an awesome disciple. This is what it means to live by faith. There are just some things that we do not understand. This, of course, was one of the primary uh, themes of the Protestant Reformation, This idea, sola fide, faith alone. Because we can't know everything. We can't have answers to all the questions. We have to trust what Jesus teaches to us by faith. Listen, I know um, some really smart people. I know religious scholars. I know people that know uh, Hebrew so well. They could stand up here and just read to you Hebrew. They could stand up here and they could read to you Greek in the New Testament, but they have no faith in Jesus Christ. But I also know people who barely know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament that have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they actually believe what Jesus Christ did on the cross counted for them. See, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not about how much we know, and I think knowledge is great, right? But let's put knowledge where it belongs. Jesus tells us, and in this teaching, it's so weird, it's so strange, there are just some things that we cannot know. And when we look to the Bible, as we look to the story of God, What we really understand, what we read through Scripture, is that God loves us. He loves us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And because of His sacrifice on the cross, that's that's a demonstration of His love. On hearing it, many of His disciples said, Captain Obvious, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus asked them, does this offend you? Of course this offends us. 
It offends everybody. I mean, this is weird. This is very, very strange. Jesus, give us a hint. What are you talking about? And Jesus says this, then what if, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Of course, what Jesus is talking about is later on when he ascends to the Father, he drops this hint, what if? They have no context for this. They don't know about the cross, they don't know about the resurrection, and they don't know about the ascension. But what Jesus is saying on that day is, I know you don't get it right now. I understand you don't get it right now. But trust me, someday you're going to get it. Someday you're going to be standing on a hill and you are going to watch me ascend back up into heaven. Then you'll be like, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. And those of you who are parents... I know you have this conversation with your kids because we've had this conversation with our kids too. I know you don't get it right now. But someday, you'll understand. Now, for us, we're still waiting for that day for them to understand. But on that day, nobody gets it. And Jesus says, trust me. Someday, you will understand my teaching." This is, uh, he went on to say, verse uh, 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. For the time, uh, for this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. From this time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many. Many of his disciples walked away. You know, Jesus, as he's watching all those people walking away, he could have said, wait, 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 come back, come back, come back, come back. Wait, 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 let me explain to you what's going on here. And he just lets the crowd walk out the door. Now, if I said something really offensive um, here um, uh, this morning, and, and this whole group of people just kind of in the middle of the sermon stood up, started walking out the door, I'd be like, whoa, you guys stay seated. Hey, guys, come on back. Let me explain what I was telling you about, that teaching, that really offensive thing I just said. That's what I would do. If I offended somebody and, and they're like, ah, oh, we're out of here. I'd be like, no, no, let me explain. And Jesus could have explained this in about four sentences, but what does he do? He just lets them walk away. He just allows the crowd to be thinning out. It's very perplexing. The story goes on. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Kind of. Right? Everybody's leaving, Jesus. 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. Now there's just... A dozen people standing there. Hey, you guys leaving too? Kinda. What do you do when God is silent in your life? When things don't make sense. You get a diagnosis. You pray, you pray, you pray. God's silent. 
Maybe you know someone dealing with a mental health issue. You pray, you pray, you pray. They're not getting better. Maybe you know someone struggling with an addiction. You pray, you pray, you pray. They're not getting better. Maybe you know someone who's struggling with a strained relationship. You pray, you pray, you pray. It's still a strained relationship. Some of you have got prodigal kids. And your prayer life is rich. Because you're praying, God, pull them back, draw them back. Crickets. What do you do when God is silent and doesn't have an answer for you in the midst of something that is absolutely devastating in your life? You know, you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. There is no pain like kid pain. We can handle a lot of stuff ourselves, but when our kids start doing things that hurt us deeply. There's no words for that. And I know many of you struggle with that. Many of you struggle with kids who have walked away from God and are living lifestyles and doing things that's far from God. And I know it's tearing you apart. What do you do? This is what's going on in the story. Crazy stuff. And Jesus is silent. He says, trust me. Someday you're going to understand. But right now, not right now am I going to tell you all you need to know. Simon Peter responds. And I love Simon Peter because he always talks first and he talks a lot. So this is what he says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Keep in mind, Simon Peter has not witnessed the cross or the resurrection yet. He still thinks Jesus is just this guy. He doesn't get it. He's the Son of God, no matter how many times. And yet Peter has faith. Lord, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Who are we going to follow? Are you kidding? We left everything to follow you. Where else are we going to go? It's a beautiful answer. Because you know people and I know people that have had things go on in their life. There's no answers from God and they walk away. When they walk away from God because they're not hearing enough from God, God's not speaking to them clearly enough. They're like, eh. I'm going my own way. And when they go their own way, you know these people, right? They don't have any peace. They don't have any answers. They just go through their lives bitter and angry and frustrated. They get involved in all sorts of behaviors to just kind of numb them out, but they don't have any peace. That's what Peter says. Hey, where where else are we going to go? There are no answers anywhere else. Where are we going to go, Lord? We're going to keep following you. We don't understand everything you're saying, but we're just going to follow you. See, I think the point of chapter 6 of the Gospel of John 
uh, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, and then this, this ex- explanation and this, this flesh and blood, and you got to eat these things. I think all of this, it all boils down to this idea that we follow Jesus, not because he's going to fill our bellies, not because he's going to make us feel good. He's shown us these signs to prove that he is the son of God. But there are going to be lots and lots of things as we go through life that we simply do not understand. We're going to go through life with doubts. So if you've got doubts today, if you came to worship today and you've got some doubts, you are making a great disciple. And what do you do with your doubts? You just pick them up. And you just carry your doubts and you keep going and you trust Jesus because he promises us that someday we're going to understand, someday we're going to be like, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. That's what was going on in my life. In Romans 5, 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, I think about that day, Good Friday, that we're going to be commemorating here about a week. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And I can imagine these same disciples who are standing there uh, on that day, they're like, God, what, what, what? Jesus is dying. He's dying on a cross. What are you doing, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? I mean, can you imagine the questions the disciples had that Holy Week and on that Good Friday as their Messiah is nailed to a cross? God's like, I'm redeeming the world. That's what I'm doing. But in that moment, the disciples didn't know it. They didn't understand it. They were just like, oh, God, I don't understand. So I want to take us back to this teaching I think it all makes sense. We think about Holy Communion. Because as the ministry continues on, Jesus is going to share the Passover meal with his disciples. A meal that commemorates God's faithfulness in bringing them through the wilderness, rescuing them out of Egypt. And so as they're gathered around this meal, before the cross, before the resurrection, Jesus takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. He says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, wait a minute. We've celebrated this meal every year of our lives, Passover time. This bread commemorates the unleavened bread when the Israelites, they were in a hurry to get out of Egypt. This bread commemorates God's work and what God has done for God's people. And we continue to look to God as the bread of life, as the one who has rescued God's people. And now Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. The disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. He was taking an Old, con- Old Testament idea or concept and he was placing himself over the bread and saying, this is my body. 
And the disciples are thinking to themselves at that Passover meal. I remember when Jesus talked about bread and being the bread of life and eating his bread, his body. It makes a little more sense now because now all of a sudden he's tying it to Passover. But what's he talking about? Why would we eat his bread? Why would we eat his body? This is all before his arrest, all before the cross. The disciples are like, well, we'll just keep going with it here. After supper, Jesus took the cup. He gave thanks. He gave it for all the disciples to drink, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. And the disciples are thinking, we know the cup. The cup represents the blood the blood of the lamb put on our doorposts so we could get out of Egypt, so we could get out of slavery, so we could experience freedom. We've celebrated this. But Jesus takes this Old Testament idea, this Old Testament concept, and he lays his very life over it. And the disciples are like, this is weird. We don't get it. But a few days later, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, they see the sacrificial lamb, blood pouring down. And they're thinking to themselves, now I get it. Now I understand. When Jesus talks about sacrificing, he's talking about his body broken for you and for me. And when he's talking about the blood, he's talking about not the lamb's blood, but the blood that Jesus is shedding there for us. Now I get it. And of course, we all have the privilege of living after the resurrection. We get it. The story makes sense to us. The bread, the wine, the body, the blood. But in that day... The disciples just had faith because it did not make sense. Now, one of the other interesting things I think about Holy Communion and why we celebrate and the church has celebrated Holy Communion for hundreds and hundreds of years is because we don't appreciate that for most of church history, people did not have Bibles. You know, until about the first 16, 1700 years of the church, the church people didn't have Bibles. They couldn't just read the Bible like you and I could read the Bible. And really, until 1820, only 12% of the global population was literate. So even if you owned a Bible until 1820, you couldn't read it anyways. So how are you going to experience Christ if you don't have a Bible to read? We experience Jesus Christ through the sacrament, the bread, the wine, the grape juice. This is why the gospel has resonated with both educated and uneducated people throughout church history. Because maybe people don't understand it all, but we get to experience Jesus, his bread and his blood sacrificed for us. And so we're going to celebrate communion today. We call this the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. 
not Brian's table, not even Faith Lutheran's table. There are actually churches that make rules and restrictions about who can receive this. We don't. Because Jesus said, unless you eat the bread and drink the wine, you have no part of me. And we believe this is for everyone, for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. This is a gift for you. This is the Lord's table. So go ahead, get out your communion elements. Go ahead and pull back the bread. And hear these words Jesus spoke for you. The body of Christ broken for you. And go ahead and peel back the wine, the grape juice. The blood of Christ shed for you. May the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen you and keep you in his grace. Amen.